Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 324, Athelred, Law and Lawlessness. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Jody, Jenny, and Bahrain for signing up already. With the Scandinavian raiders gone, and with Elfrich of Hampshire defanged, England was free to get back to work. And as we saw last episode, this meant that the king was once again redistributing wealth from the Havelots to the Have-Even-Moors. And that meant that the dynasty of Wolfrun, as well as the umpteen cousin Athelbrads and Mom, were doing pretty damn well. But there's more to being a king than handing out juicy presents to the nobles who hang out in your court. Occasionally, you have to rule the kingdom. And in 997, the demands of rule compelled Athelred and his court to travel to Woodstock. No, not that Woodstock. The English one. And once there, rather than having a music festival, they had a Wittanagamont. And like all Wittanagamonts, there was a long list of work that had to be done. It was work of all kinds. Decisions were made, cases were heard, and all the sorts of important matters of state were being dealt with. But the Woodstock meeting stands out in history because it was here that Athelred issued his first surviving legal code, the Woodstock Code, also known as First Athelred. Now, if you've been taking notes, you're currently wondering how this is possible because there's already been a legal code that was authored by Athelred and it's already been mentioned in the show. It was the one that was issued many years before at Bromden. And if you are that listener, well done. But don't worry, this is not a mistake. There was a Bromden Code, and we know about it because it was referenced in the Woodstock Code. But unfortunately for us, the Bromden Code was lost, and it's the Woodstock Code that's the earliest of Athelred's codes that has survived to the modern day. But the fact is, we actually think that Athelred issued a couple of law codes before he got to Woodstock. But that being said, this one at Woodstock was pretty good. And I know, it's shocking to hear me say positive things about Athelred. I tend to castigate him right alongside the cacophony of nobles who were propelling much of the nonsense that marks this era. And I do that for good reason. The nobility of England during this period, of which Athelred was a member, was basically a Dark Age garbage fire. But, despite all the obvious dysfunction in the ruling class the Woodstock Code is basically everything you'd want out of an early law code. Inside is a series of principles indicating how life should operate in England. Particularly, it's sought to regulate the relationship between the ruling classes and the people. And it actually provides a list of consequences should anyone fail to meet those principles. The Woodstock Code functionally integrates the lords into the broader legal structure that regulated their behavior. And thus, it provided the people with some measure of, well, maybe not protection, but at least some boundaries. For example, the new law holds that, quote, every free man should have trustworthy surety, that the surety hold him to all justice if he be charged, end quote. Now, a surety is someone who takes responsibility for someone else's performance. So what this law is saying is that if you are a free person, your access to justice will be ensured. 
and that your compliance with that justice will also be ensured. And who will ensure it? Your Lord, of course. So this was a codification of the rule that said that the lords were responsible for their men. And that's important because it means that lords were finally being locked into the broader judicial system. And thus, it prevented them from having their own legal fiefdoms. And these were exactly the right laws coming along at exactly the right time. And let's be honest here, that feels incongruent with everything else we know about Athelred and his court. And looking at this code, you'd be forgiven if you started to think that maybe we missed something. And maybe the noble culture of the time of Athelred was actually functional, and maybe we're being unfair or got caught up in some sort of anti-English propaganda that was being pushed by later dynasties. But unfortunately for the people of England, that's probably not the case. The records that give us evidence of the ineffectiveness of Athelred's reign are not only English, but many of them are actually contemporary. This poor reputation doesn't seem to be the case of political revisionism. It just kind of seemed to have sucked. But there's no denying that the Woodstock Code were good laws. Because even a broken clock is right twice a day. Though, as we've discussed before, you can have the best laws in the world, and they won't mean a damn thing unless they're actually enforced. Though it does make me wonder why they came about. And perhaps this sudden appearance of competence is a sign of something else going on in the political scene. Or maybe the arrival of someone. These laws appear at precisely the same time as Bishop Wolfstan is elevated to his seat. And Wolfstan wasn't just another bishop with his eyes on heaven. He came to his position with some very particular ideas about how a kingdom should be run. He was a thinker and somewhat of a reformer. And so the appearance of this law code less than a year after Bishop Wolfstan rose to prominence is worth noting, because I suspect this wasn't a coincidence. And that wasn't the only thing to come out of the Woodstock with Tanagamont that was interesting. From this meeting, we also find a new name appearing in the charters. Suddenly, Edwig, Athelred's fifth son, appears in the witness lists. And from this, we can be sure that Athelred already had five sons, and we're relatively certain that his two daughters, Elfgifu and Aedgif, were also born by this point. Though, as girls who were unfortunate enough to be born in Wessex, they don't appear in the witness list themselves. And then, just as these little successes start to appear on the political stage of England, ships were sighted off the coast of Wales. Viking ships. And that might be a surprise to you, since Olaf and Forkbeard were fighting over the throne of Norway, and thus large numbers of warriors would have been caught up in that struggle, as the two dynastic powerhouses were trying to bolster their numbers with any available allies or even mercenaries that were in the region. So you'd think that that would suck the oxygen out of the room and provide some sort of buffer for the British Isles, especially in combination with the recent peace treaties that were brokered. And actually, there's no indication that Olaf ever broke his truce. The peace that was struck with him appears to have been a peace that lasted. However, it doesn't appear that everyone was on board with these treaties. Nor was everyone interested in risking their lives for a royal rumble when there was a lot of money to be made elsewhere. The Scandinavian world was big, and it was notoriously independent when it came to matters of seeking one's own fortune. So there would have been plenty of captains and crews who were willing to hit the seas in search of easy loot on unprotected foreign shores. 
Furthermore, Scandinavia might be home to some of the Viking raiders, but it wasn't home to all of the Viking raiders. Ireland, and Dublin in particular, as well as the Isle of Man, Strathclyde, and Orkney housed large numbers of Viking fleets. And many of those regions had Viking settlements on them as well. And when I say Viking settlements, I mean exactly that. These weren't just Scandinavian in culture. These towns were structured on going a Viking. Economically, life revolved around slave markets, shipping harbors, traders, and all the secondary activity that ensured that Viking loot would become Viking wealth. And that meant that there were large numbers of professional ocean burglars who were just a hop, skip, and a jump away from England, and who likely didn't care what deals Athelred had struck with a couple of blue bloods who lived across the North Sea. Anyone who thought the Viking troubles were over were in for a serious disappointment. But, at least for now, these ships were just harrying the west coast of Wales, which meant they were mostly just a problem for King Hul of Morganwig and King Meredith of Greater Gwyneth. And Viking raiders, especially from Ireland, were nothing new for those monarchs. King Meredith in particular had spent most of his reign defending his lands from Vikings, rebuilding his lands after Viking attacks, and, when necessary, ransoming back his captured subjects after those Viking attacks. The records out of Wales, what few they are, give a clear indication that the kingdoms were under a constant assault by fleets of pirates from the north and the west. And they dealt with those assaults while also managing the ever-present threat of the English on their eastern and southern edges. Welsh life wasn't for the timid. But as far as the English were concerned, so long as the raiders stayed in Wales, then they weren't much of a concern for Athelred and his counselors. But then this fleet did something strange. They raided their way south along the coast of Wales. And then, when they reached Pembrokeshire, rather than returning home to sell all the treasure and slaves they'd obtained, they continued moving south, across the Bristol Channel, and to the settlements of Cornwall. Once there, they began moving eastward, up the channel, and into the Severn Estuary. And along the way, they struck the Cornish towns and villages, and then the Devonshire towns and villages. And soon, they reached the monastery of Tavistock in Devon. Now, this monastery was overseen by Elderman Ordwolf, the king's own uncle and one of the senior members of the new faction that now held power in the English court. But that fact didn't seem to bother the Viking raiders at all. Or maybe this was actually part of their plan. Or maybe they had no idea who Ordwolf was. We don't know. But by the time that the fleets left Tavistock, the monastery had been sacked and burned. But even then, the Vikings weren't satisfied. They kept moving east, now fully entering the Severn Estuary. And they began raiding western Somerset. Elderman Athelweird's territory, another powerful member of the king's innermost council. And there, they devastated the lands of this second powerful elderman. And these raids give us insight into what was happening in Viking culture as we move into the 11th century. Because no longer are we seeing small bands engaging in hit-and-run strikes. Now we're seeing large-scale armies and fleets who engaged in long-term and sometimes multi-year campaigns, who didn't need to return home once they gathered enough loot, and instead 
they kept living that Viking life 24-7. I mean, why bother going home when there's money to be made? And right at the same time, in the archaeological record, we see Athelred's coins popping up in Norse colonies across the Irish Sea and in Strathclyde. This suggests that this may be where the raiders were coming from. And what they likely figured out is that they could just keep raiding, just keep pushing inland by using the island's rivers, and only send a portion of their fleet back to the markets of Dublin or Dumbarton or elsewhere with their loot and slaves. And meanwhile, they could keep raiding, waiting for the ships to come back, who, when they returned, could pick up the next load. Like I said, there was a lot of money to be made here. And with the increased economic pressure coming from the consolidation of wealth and power throughout Europe, it doesn't surprise me at all that the scale and frequency of these ventures were increasing. After all, this was how nobles increased their stature and position in society. So it was inevitable that they would need to step up their operations if they were going to keep up with the increased competition that was being presented to them by the ultra-wealthy nobles who were now also getting into the game. Nobles like Forkbeard and Olaf. The Viking raids were moving into a new phase. And it can't be denied that England was under a significant amount of strain due to these raids. And now, the carnage had reached the doorstep of some of the most powerful members of the English nobility. And that raises a question. What were the English doing in response? What sort of resistance and counterattacks were they mustering? I mean, we know that the English fleet probably wasn't in great shape thanks to the betrayal of Elfridge of Hampshire. And we can be relatively certain that at least portions of the Ferd had seen better days thanks to the various disastrous losses, such as the Battle of Malden. But England was vast, and the Ferd was stationed at Burrs all throughout the kingdom. They still had warriors. So surely there was a response, right? Unfortunately, we simply don't have documents that detail what the English military was up to. The Chronicle does make sure that we know that there's a lot of burning and slaying throughout England at the hands of the Vikings in 997. And it does give us details of where that burning and slaying was happening, which is why I was able to give an account of the campaign. But there's nothing about the English response. Not a word. So what does that mean? Did the nobility abdicate their responsibility to organize the Ferd and defend their lands? Or was there some sort of resistance, but for whatever reason, it was left out of the record? I don't know, but it gives me the sense that we aren't hearing the full story. Especially since, when we look at other documents, it's quite clear that the English court was highly active during this period, at least in other important areas of rule. Namely, in legislative, administrative, and ultimately political matters. And that does make the silence on military events rather suspicious. But, as this Viking problem began to boil over in the West, the legislative and administrative machine of Athelred's court was churning on. And the work that they were doing was so prolific and so surprisingly well-crafted that historians, such as Keynes, credit his court with creating, quote, some of the finest legislation ever produced by the Anglo-Saxon kings, end quote. And so... Shortly after the meeting at Woodstock and the ravaging of two eldermen's lands, Athelred called another great Wittanagamont, and this one was at Wantage in Berkshire. And the purpose of this Wittan, much like the earlier one at Woodstock, was to issue a legal code. 
And just like at Woodstock, this one was using the legal structures to strengthen the bonds that the kingdom relied upon. Having tackled many of the matters relating to the relationship between lord and subject, this time the court focused on another rift that existed within England. A rift that had grown so wide it was threatening to end the kingdom. They had come together to address the rift between the Danelaw and the rest of England. And this Witan would ultimately produce the Wantage Code, also sometimes known as Third Athelred. And right from the start, it's clear that this was a different kind of code. The language and terminology that it uses is distinctly Scandinavian. And that's a sharp contrast from the previous kings and the previous codes. And it seems like a clear indication that Athelred and his court were making a deliberate effort at reaching out to the Anglo-Danes of the north and the east. And for good reason. Because while the Woodstock Code was regulating, normalizing, and consolidating the rule of law in England, it only applied to non-Danelaw territories. So while Athelred and his court were making efforts at legally binding the kingdom and ensuring that the law would be the law regardless of which shire you were in, that would only apply to non-Danelaw territories. But the Wantage Code would change all that. The main goal here was to extend the Woodstock Code into the territories of the Danelaw and functionally extend English law into the Danelaw as a whole. And actually, it specifically speaks of how the king's rights applied within the five boroughs, and that the king's peace, quote, may remain as firm as it best was in the days of his ancestors, end quote. Which is basically saying that this was a return to the old days, when Northumbria, the five boroughs, and the other associated territories were English, and that Athelred, as the king of the English, had rights that predated the Danelaw, and they were rights that had not expired. Like the Woodstock Code, it was a good code. And I find it really interesting that this appeared shortly after Bishop Wolfstan appeared on the scene, and after the House of Wolfren rose in prominence in the English court. Because Wolfstan would go on to have a pretty good relationship with the Scandinavians. And as for Wolfren's house, well, as Mercians, they would have a keen interest in integrating the Danelaw into the rest of England. Because if the Danelaw ever decided to flex its muscles, the war would have to come to the Mercian border first. This timing could all be coincidence, but it seems to me that the new crop of nobles had plenty of reasons to want to make this work. And then, to make sure the point was taken, the code introduced harsher penalties for violating the king's laws. So Athelred wasn't just trying to sweet-talk the Danelaw by using words and symbols that would speak to their Scandinavian heritage he was also making it clear that he would strong-arm them into English law if he had to. And that was just one aspect of this project. We also see them working at integrating the Dane law in other ways. For example, at around this same time, we see the revival of the Bishopric of Lindsay. Now, this bishopric had been allowed to expire after the Danish conquest, but now it was being recreated, and it was being granted to Bishop Sigfirth, a staunch political ally of the South. So this appointment was in keeping with the king's policy of installing friendly nobles in positions of power. And actually, he already had one friendly noble in the north at this point, as he had appointed Alfhelm as the elderman of Northumbria. And Elfhelm was the brother of one of the most powerful figures in Athelred's court, Wolfrich Spot, son of Wolfrun. 
So that too would serve as another way to bind Northumbria to the faction that was currently holding sway in Winchester. The court seemed to be moving quickly and decisively to ensure that the division that had marked this era, the breaks between the shires, the breaks between lords and subjects, the breaks between lords and their king, and the break between England and the Danelaw, would all come to an end. Or at least, that was the plan. But rule is more than simply issuing law codes. Even really good codes. Culture also plays its part. And Athelred was at the head of a reign that was defined by its factionalism and its corruption. So it's not like he could issue the do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do act and then just expect everyone to start playing nice. The divisions that already existed in England had deepened under his watch. And unless he could find a way to change the culture of England and soothe those divisions, no legal code, no matter how well written, was going to fix anything. And this is one of the hidden dangers of leaders like Athelred. If you foster a culture where everyone in the power structure is exploiting situations for their own benefit or for the benefit of their faction, how are you going to get them to work together when you need it? Will new laws really bring the nobles back in line and get them to work for the interests of the kingdom? Or are they simply going to find a way to use those laws to undercut their rivals? Well, I guess we're going to find out. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on pretty much every social media site out there, and you can find links to all of them in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.